Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. It's a very informal start. I've just came to the conclusion that I'm not about the formalities. So I like to just get in there. I think that's good. I think that's how it just it just flows easily. Then, if you don't kind of if it's not kind of formal and stuff, yeah, 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 and absolutely. I'm as I said to you before we started recording there that I am delighted and very appreciative that you have decided to come on the Bro and the Brave. I will say I will be formal in the sense that I will introduce who I'm speaking to, and um, I am delighted to be speaking to Robert Scott, composer and musical director, at a very busy, busy time in your life. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And we'll get on to that. But um, to put it into some context, like we were saying just before I hit record, I recently spoke to your brother. Yes. George, what a talented family, I have to say. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, I've got two sisters who are... I'm not saying they're not talented, but they're not anything to do with the arts. And then my brother and I are just, yeah, totally in, into it. Yeah, it's weird. Can you recall, like, your earliest memory of music growing up? Was it music in the house? Was it music at school? Like, do you have, like, a fond memory of music being in your life from a young age? Well, my dad had a record player and he always had records. He always had Jim Reeves is what I remember. That's, you know, that's my very first kind of yes. memory of music. But I had loads and loads of Jim Reeves albums. I, I could sing you half of the songs, I swear. And, and he used to play them a lot. And, and and I suppose that is the earliest musical musical kind of memory. But the family weren't musical as such, as much as he liked, you know, listening to that, that kind of stuff and country western, I suppose, and Scottish stuff. But... Um, I've got this odd picture in my mind. I remember seeing a piano on television, somebody playing the piano, and it was a grand piano, and they were playing, and the reflection of their hands were, or, you know, you could see the reflection of their hands, and I, d- I don't know, I've no idea why, but that just fascinated me, and that was it. I needed to play, the. I just wanted to play the piano. And, of course, they kept discouraging me because, what if I wanted a piano and they bought me a piano and then six weeks later I thought, oh, I'm fed up with that. And yeah, so, that's not like a recorder. <laughs> so I think I went on so much that I didn't let it go that eventually I think a, a woman down the road in the village or somewhere where we were was getting rid of an old piano, they found out. And so we got this old piano and it was a really old piano. It was massive and, and it was in the living room. And But it was decent. It was, you know, we had it tuned and it was decent. And that was that. That was it. You know, I went to piano lessons and that was it, you know. And this was you growing up in East Ayrshire? In, um, I don't think, we don't call it East Ayrshire. We call, I don't know what we call it. Doon Valley, Doon Mellington, yeah. 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 Where your peers at school at Learning Instruments, was that the done thing? No, not at all. It was, it was a mining village and um, there was three brass bands and they're big in the brass bands, and they were massive. They still are. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Don Silver Band was like Scottish champion, still, a, you know, this massive thing. And I knew people that were involved in that, and I used to go on long listening stuff, but I was never a brass player, really. And um, But no, I'd, I had one friend, a girl who lived up the road, she played piano. And so both of us ended up doing, like, old grade music and horror music together, and she was somebody I knew, and I, she sang, and I used to play for her and stuff like that. But... 
no, it was a bit. There was like, there's only three of us doing old grade music and then higher music. So I mean, it was it was quite kind of you know it was a small small bunch. But and did you take to it like a like a duck to water? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I, I really did. I was I was into music. I was into listening to music and playing music and and even writing music. Young, you know, I, I kind of used to make stuff up and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I did. I loved it. So was then quite a clear pathway to pursue music as a career or did you have something else in mind? Was music just always going to be in your life some way, shape or form? Um, I, th- I think when I left school, I I was not encouraged to do music because it's not a real job, you know, according to my, my family. And um, I did kind of venture off into something else for a year and I thought, I've done enough music now. But as soon as I, I decided I wasn't going to do it, I knew that was a mistake. And so I... I got straight back in. I applied to the academy. I I got into the academy, the Royal Scottish Academy, as it was then. And and that, mm. yeah, I moved up to Glasgow to college. I was there for four years, and then moved to London, and that was it. Cool. I moved to London with absolutely nothing, with no contacts, no job, no nothing. I, when I think about it now, I just must have been insane. I just knew I liked musicals and musical theatre and. I had a friend who was like trying to audition to get into musicals and I used to go along and play for his auditions, but I had no work, I had no contacts, I had nothing. And when I think about it now, I just think I must have been utterly insane. Well, you weren't, eh? Because look, look what happened. You were clearly just passionate about it and that's or, what... Or maybe stupid. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's just crazy. When I, th- when I think about it, I just think, oh my God, you know. But when you're young, you are you are kind of adventurous and stupid, so, you know. Yeah, although I feel like I should have been way more adventurous. Like, the more I hear stories on this podcast, I'm like, can I, can I start again? Because I'm just so fascinated by people who just are very, what I would call brave at any age, I guess. But, like, to move to London's like, a big deal for anybody, but, like, well, yeah, as a young person. Right now, that sounds really brave. But at the time, and looking back, it is just, like, it's just foolhardy and crazy, but I suppose there's a kind of mixture of, of all of that, and and luckily it paid off, you know. It sure did. So you're in London, you're playing for friends that are auditioning. Are you putting yourself out there in terms of, like, I'm looking for this opportunity, I'm looking for a job, or was it just one of those, like, happy accidents? It was, it was all, everything's, everything's accidental, but I think everything really is accidental. You know, I think very few people can plan, especially in the arts. You can't really say, I'm going to write a musical or I'm going to conduct at the Palladium. You're just going to, you know, things are just going to happen if you're lucky. And I was lucky very, very early on. I used to play for this guy, and, uh, you know, very early on, I remember just going to play from and I played his song and we were walking out and they asked me to stay <laughs> and they said we need a pianist for tomorrow are you free and I said yeah and that was that and then I got so instead of going to play for him for nothing I got to play for the next day's editions and actually get paid for it and then the guy who was the MD on those editions was doing a show in town that had two keyboards in it, and he said, would you like to come in and look at one of the keyboards? Because we need depths, you know, when people are off, you know, musicians kind of do lots of different things. And that was it. That was me. I was started. I started then. Yeah, then you start to meet people, and then people hear about you, and then you start, you know, that that's how it all worked, basically. You know, it just all started falling into place after that. I was very lucky. Well, you say that, but you're clearly a very talented human being. Well, everybody's talented. I think I, I, luck plays such a massive part. You know, I know I know lots of very, very talented people that don't work, and I know quite a lot of lesser talented people that work a lot. I, it's, it's it's luck. It really is. I believe that. I believe it's it's kind of fate and luck so much of the time. You know. 
you know, anybody that's not even into musical theatre knows the musicals that you've been a part of, you've worked on. The list is endless. And, you know, I'm looking at the list, Singing in the Rain, White Christmas, Carousel, Funny Girl, like classics. Yeah. Have there been particular musicals that feel like very poignant moments for your career? In your career, was there a particular moment where you're like, I can't believe I am working on this? And I, I know, obviously, every single musical will have a special place in your heart for various reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they do, and and it's all. It's I was just into somebody this morning. Actually, it's not so much the musical; it's the people you work with as well. You know, it's that make the experience. But again, it's just things you know happened, and and all the musicals that I've done, probably barring none, have been your old fashioned classic musicals. Now, I didn't say it often say I only want to do this, but this is these are the things that came my way through either contacts or or whatever. But yeah. I suppose the first big one would be, I did Me and My Girl, I, that was my first job. I took over, it'd been running for about five years, and I took over that. I'd been, I started playing in the pit as a pianist, then I got moved up to assistant MD, and then I got, uh, I got the show myself, and I did the show for a couple of years as, as MD, and that was when Gary Wilmot and Jessica Martin joined. And that was quite a big deal, because... Um, Gary was kind of, he was absolutely brilliant in the role. I mean, he kind of redefined it from Robert Lindsay created it. And then he kind of brought a, a kind of, uh, Robert Lindsay's an, an actor, a very fine actor. And Gary was known as a kind of um, light entertainment comedian. And he brought lots of different things to it. And and he was brilliant in the role. And the, and the show was massive when I was doing it because he, there was such a buzz about him. And so that was a, a real big deal. Every single project that you take on must just be totally different. There's not like you're not going into it going, I know exactly how this is going to absolutely go. Oh. I mean, when when I did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the Palladium, I mean, the the Sherman brothers were there. They were in rehearsal every day, and to walk into a room and there are the two men that wrote Mary Poppins. You know, you just think if you could see my face, <laughs> it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. It really is. And and they were the nicest, kindest people you, you would ever really? Oh my God, it's that that is an experience I would never forget, you know. And because Chitty was written by Ian Fleming, so it was owned by the Bond franchise, you know, because they, they own all of so all the, the big meetings were in the big boardroom at Eon House, which is where, you know, I'm sitting at this big table where they have the meetings about the James Bond films, you know, and there's the Sharon brothers sitting opposite me. It's just like you, you just pinch yourself and think, yeah, what's going on here, you know? Does Robert Scott have imposter syndrome? Are you? Are you... <laughs> every day, every day. <laughs> I know this comes up all the time with the podcast and every time someone says it to me I'm like no that I'm sure that's just me I think you're telling fibs I think you've got it I think you've got it sus but yeah it, it seems to be and I think it's very prevalent in the arts as well I think as creatives because you're putting yourself out there you're being vulnerable a lot of the time mm. you're giving a lot of yourself mm. um yeah it's it's quite easy even for the likes of Robert Scott to to suffer from as, as a Scottish person we we generally don't blow our own trumpets my mum and dad loved me and supported me but they never kind you know they don't kind of brag about you because we, we just don't do that kind of thing you know and Scottish people tend to play it all down you know, I see it in, in friends that I have in the business and actors and dancers and singers and Scottish people. They, they don't brag about themselves. They don't, you know, it's just it's not in their DNA. You don't want to get a big heat. Absolutely not. You're not allowed to. 
I know I was having this discussion with a guy the other day there um, and he works in schools, he works in education and we were talking about the importance of instilling that confidence and saying to our young people, you can absolutely do anything you want to. Then he was like in the same breath and actually he's Irish. He was saying the Scots and the Irish are the same, but very much like don't go on the stage and say you're it because you'll get shot down. But I guess it's like that mix between arrogance and confidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. To be fair, I think we've got it down to a fine art. I think we're, we're pretty pretty decent at all that. Oh, me too, me too. <laughs> so have you always continued to compose music as well as being, you know, a musical director on all these very famous musicals? I've always kind of written things. I mean, at college I wrote a little a kid's nativity that was performed a couple of times, and I've always kind of in the background, but it's not... And I suppose it stems from what we're just talking about. I do. I never liked playing things to people because it was like showing off and saying, "Listen, look what I've done." Or, and you've also get this captive audience where you sit and play them a song, and they kind of got to go, "Oh, that's nice," or "Oh, I like that," whereas they might not. So I never. I mean, I've got I've got a hundred songs in a bottom drawer that that nobody's ever heard, you know. And and I, I, I always found it difficult. I still do to an extent, letting people hear stuff because it's it's very exposing, you know. Absolutely. But it's. I think as a creative, it's just nice to have that moment for yourself to keep creating, creating something for you. Yeah. Whether someone hears it or not, I think it's just that process, like going through that process is important because then you just take that back into your work, your everyday yeah. work. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Are there elements of the the job as such that you still to this day grapple with you know whether it be the travel or whether it be like just getting started or is there stuff that you're like oh as a musical director I hate and loathe doing auditions because people come in and you know you've got a job for maybe like 10 kids in the ensemble and like 200 people come in you know and it's just horrible it's horrible and there's lots of reasons why you have to employ certain people and because you've got to do understudies and you've got to do certain types. And it's just, it's a horrible kind of power to have, you know, to see whether somebody can work or not, somebody can pay the rent. I, I, I loathe that. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Any auditions that I've sat in, I just come out absolutely shattered because, I, well, I've smiled the entire day because you just want to make the people feel mm-hmm. like they're welcome and that they're doing their best job and uh, yeah it's quite an exhaustive process like it really is it really is and it's it's hard you know to to watch people really try and then then you're not able to to give them something it's difficult i don't enjoy that no no, i can't imagine you do it's not like an enjoyable thing to like you say to have that power in your hands but then putting together a cast and then putting something on stage like it's such an incredible journey and I guess unless you work in the arts and are familiar with theatre there's so much that goes into oh yeah Yeah. the collaboration with other other people is that something that you feel like you were that was instilled in your training when you were at college uh, not so much college, it's when you actually start to do something, you realise that you can't put on a musical without the choreographer, without the director, without the DSM calling the show in the corner, without stage manager, without the crew, the wigs people, the sound people. You know, it's it, there is not one person who isn't a, a very, very important cog in the wheel. It is such a team thing, you know. Obviously, the director has to be in charge, but it's such a... a, a a thing that that everybody has to be involved in, you know. I, I, when we did Singing in the Rain in Japan, done it in, in Japan twice or three times now, I think. And they've got an amazing thing on day one when the show is about to open or do its first performance. 
that day, that morning, I think it is, they get everybody involved in the production into the into the auditorium. And when I say everybody, I mean the cleaners in the theatre, the people that sell the tickets, the box office people, the everybody, the orchestra, the the wigs people, the makeup people, absolutely everybody is in the audience sitting there and they do a speech and they have a kind of um I don't know what you would call it, a kind of little kind of thing that they that, that you have to go up and bow to and each head of department goes up and they've got this little kind of um I can't even describe it. It's a little thing that they've made, a little kind of model thing. And they have kind of blessing the theatre and blessing the people and everybody has to stand up. You look in the auditorium and there are well over 100 people. And then if you go and see the show, there's like, you see 20 people and you maybe hear the band and that's all you see. But there's well over 100 people there that are all integral part of putting this show on. And it's an amazing kind of coming together of of the team that, that we need to do the show. It's brilliant. It really is. Yeah. That's really nice, yeah, because obviously, like, individual actors and individual people have their own rituals pre-show or yep. before they go into something, but it's lovely, like, as a collective that yep. they do that, that they mark that everybody is a cog in the wheel and it's ve- they're very important. Absolutely. Yeah, from the woman who cleans the theatre to the people who sell the tickets to the leading player to the director, everybody, yeah, it's a lovely thing. Being an extremely important cog in that wheel yourself, you're very much in the background, though. Is that something that you were always just happy being like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be front and centre, I'm not going to be on stage as such? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not comfortable, kind of. I'm fine talking to the cast and, and like, doing a rehearsal and all that kind of stuff, but, oh, no, I'm I'm very happy with my back to the audience. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't want to be kind of centre stage or anything. No. Obviously, you mentioned earlier on, you know, sitting in that room where they have meetings about James Bonds and stuff. (laughs) Have there been... Other pinch me moments, have you been able to meet people that you just thought, I never thought that would happen, or just moments in a theatre where, you know, that, that silence where you feel like there could be a pin drop? Have there been those particular moments that just stand out for you? Um, I've, yeah, I've met, I mean, I've been lucky. I've met loads and loads of people that you, you admire and, and whether you're actually working with them or just, just met them or stuff like that, you know. That's an, an amazing thing. And it's nice to work closely with people. I've worked with Michael Ball a couple of times when he did Chitty and then I did a production of Mac and Mabel with him. And and he's a he's a real pro, you know, he's a real company leader and a real every single show, 100%. And you, no matter whether, you know, whatever you think um, of musical theatre performance or your favourite musical theatre performer or not, he is 100% every single show. And, and that's, that's a nice, because that means that, Everybody else in the show has to give 100%. That means that I have to give 100%. Because if if the guy who's who's at the top, the same when I did um, Sing in the Rain, Adam Cooper from, from the Royal Ballet, 100% every single show. And therefore, the company does 100%. It's, it makes it really easy, you know. Um, it's, it's great when you, when you have that, those kind of leaders and those kind of people that everybody look up to and aspire to. It's, it's, it's a brilliant thing. Because people say, don't you get bored doing eight shows a week? You can never get bored doing eight shows a week. Can you, you've got people like that who are walk onto stage and genuinely try to be the best that night. What can be boring about that? Yeah, you're doing the same thing, but you have to do it as well every night. You know, you have to get keep the standard up, you know. And when you're working with people like that, it's it, it really kind of keeps everybody in their toes. Mm, of course. 
I'm just smiling to be here because I'm just thinking like of all the shows that you've been involved in, like the, the other things that came with the career that you probably wouldn't have expected, like the countries that you've seen, the right. culture that you'll have been exposed to, and how how audiences around the world respond. Because mm, mm. you know, you're talking about that ritual in in, in Japan. Japan, yeah. Have there been other moments like that where you're like, oh wow, that I didn't expect that? Well, well, I suppose yeah, absolutely. I mean, singing the rain was a was a a really interesting one. I got a call saying, would you like to do singing the rain in Chichester? I'd worked in Chichester a few times. I did Funny Girl there, and I did Carousel there, did Mac and Mabel there, and they asked me if I wanted to do singing the rain. And it's just a summer job. It's uh, just a fe- festival is a a festival theatre that runs for the summer months, and so it was like a twelve week gig. And then, so we did the rehearsals, and um, we—I remember—we did the dress rehearsal, and it was a disaster. The rain didn't work. The costume changes didn't work. The floor was too slippy. The, uh, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. So that was a Friday afternoon. So we opened on the Friday night. On the night, everything went very well, and the whole audience stood up as one at the end. And we were kind of in a bit of a shock because it had all been kind of chaotic and difficult, and the audience went bananas and then we did about 10 previews before we went to the press and every single night they stood up and went bananas and before we even opened we'd been told we were transferring to West End which none of us thought for a second that was going to happen we just thought it was a summer job it was saying they and not only and then when we were into the West End we opened to no advance and people the, the, the West End people was there oh you'll only last six weeks we lasted a year and a half then they did a national tour then I took it to South Africa, I took it to New Zealand, I took it to Australia, I've taken it to Japan twice, and I've taken it to Moscow. And that is just a, a lot when you think it's a 12-week job and it's just singing the rain, a show that everybody knows. And it was just such a brilliant production. And that's been that's been an amazing gift. And as you say, seeing the reaction in all those different places, you know, and getting an amazing reaction. Japan was funny because we did it in English, but there were subtitles down the side. They run up and down in Japan, not along the way, so up and down both sides. And the audiences are very quiet because they're reading and they're listening to the songs and watching. But then at the end of the show, they just, I mean, they just go. It's it like a football match. I mean, they go insane and it's weird because for the whole show you're thinking oh they're hating this they're hating this <laughs> and then at the end of the show it's like you know a Wembley final you know it's you're like, oh you liked it oh good yeah. but it's one of those things like it's such an iconic film so to yeah. work on and, I, and I've worked on the amateur production of mm. uh, Singing of the Rain and we made it rain on stage it was the most exciting thing it really was yeah. and uh, yeah it must just be like it's such a I mean any musical it's such a responsibility yeah put something on stage and we not only made it rain we made it flood because we had this tank below this the stage and so as soon as it started to rain we made it flood as well so when he started doing the dance routine after the song was finished started doing the dance routine he, he, he soaked the audience basically if you remember, in Chichester it's a thrust stage so it was three sides that used to get soaked but in a normal theatre he would just soak the first few rows because he would just kick these massive puddles out into the pit and the audience just loved it they absolutely loved it right now i'm supposed to be in japan again uh, we were doing a run at saddler's wells in july august and then in september we're going to japan and then we're coming home and then we're going back and going to china and then it was doing another full national tour but of course the whole thing scrapped because of the virus because of the virus yeah. you know it comes up in every conversation it's just it's on the tip of our tongues and i know that this is a very exciting time for you 
And it's very exciting for the world of musical theatre because you, sir, composed the music for the musical Sleepless. I did, yes. I mean, I've just been, well, I've been just looking at everything possible online. It looks tremendous. And what I've heard is just beautiful. Oh, thank Congratulations. You. Thank you. Thank you. So the plan was to open in April, is that right? Uh, no, the plan was to open a couple of years ago, and it's it's had a kind of checkered career. I've been on it for years, for about seven, six, seven years. Okay. Uh, when I originally uh, wrote it or started writing it, and then we did a workshop that was very successful, and then we went into production, and then for various reasons, the production hit road bumps and and uh, those problems, and it had to be cancelled, and then we got it up again, and it was opening in March. And they were in the theatre and they'd done the rehearsals. They'd done the dress rehearsal and the sits probe with the orchestra and the technical rehearsals and then lockdown. That was it. So everybody went home and the set just sat there for months and months and months. And um, the producer, Michael Rose, like everybody wants theatre back. I mean, we were kind of first out and now we're kind of last back. And I get it because it's a whole load of people indoors and I get how how difficult that is, but we can't just stand back and do nothing. Apart from it being our livelihood, it's it's something that's really essential for, for everybody, I think, that culture, for escapism, for whatever, you know, cinema, theatre, dance, music, whatever. We need it, or there's no point. So, yeah, the, the theatre is, is actually an old television studio. It's in, it's in Wembley, just down from the, from the stadium. And it was where they used to film X Factor and all that, and it become a theatre. Uh, it's ah. called the Troubadour. And it's a big theatre. It's about a 1,600-seat theatre. So they can limit the numbers. So just now there's only about 400 get in, which is really financially viable, but it just needs to prove that it can be done. When the audience walk in, they get the temperature taken, the cast tested every day. There's, there's all the precautions. You have to wear masks. There's, you know hand washing stations so you know everything that can be done has been done and yeah on Tuesday night the show opened to the press and the audience were there and I think more than just an opening of a new musical which is exciting enough it was just people back in a theatre and live theatre happening again and there was such a kind of lovely feeling and a, a real kind of sense of relief of, of we've got it back you know I can't imagine the elation of everybody involved yeah. in the production just to be doing what they just love to yeah. do, aside from the financial aspect and all that stuff that we know yeah. about. It's just like you say, it's just the passion that to, to do to do what you love to do. And storytelling is so important. Yeah, yeah. It really is. And the story, obviously, is of the film Sleepless in Seattle. So where did the idea originate? Did someone come to you and say, you need to be writing this musical? <laughs> kind of, yeah. It actually had been done eight years ago or something in California. And it didn't work for whatever reason. Lots of things try and don't work, and it didn't work. And somebody brought it, the, the, the guy who was a music supervisor, who Larry Blank, who did the orchestrations for this, brought it to the, the, the producer and said, look, this is a good idea for a musical and it's a great script and it's a great story. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a film that everybody knows because it is so unique. You know, the two protagonists don't meet until the last two minutes of the movie. You know, it, it doesn't happen in any other film. And when you have these kind of um, surveys of favourite rom-coms, it's always in the top 10. You know, people have got a real soft spot for it, you know. And so he brought it to the producer. The producer watched a, a video of it and said, it needs a new score. He didn't, he thought that, 
it needed a score that was more kind of um, sentimental and old fashioned and and like the music that they, they actually used in the movie. And I had written something for him and, I'd, and he'd heard some other stuff that I'd written and he was a producer of Chitty and White Christmas and stuff. And he called me up and he said, would you like to do this? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, why not? I said, because I think it's it's a big ask. I said, you know, the things that I've done have been much smaller and I, I, I didn't feel confident because it's such a, sleep is such a well-known thing. And I said, I'm really not sure that, that I'd be up to something like that. And he said, I need you to send me some stuff that you've written to send it because there are American producers involved as well. So I sent them a few bits and they got back and said, could he take two moments from the movie and write two songs? I thought, okay, we'll do that. So I got in touch with a friend who I'd been working with who was in Singing in the Rain as an actor. And um, we just got together and wrote a couple of songs. We wrote the song where um, Sam, the Tom Hanks character, is on the phone to the disc jockey, the, the, the agony ant woman, and she asks him, what was she like? What was your wife like? And he says, how long have you got? And he sings a song called Everything About Her. And then we wrote another song where the mum is upstairs with the daughter and they're kind of looking at her wedding dress and the daughter's um, the Meg Ryan character, Annie says to mum, how do you know when you found the right guy? And the mum sings a song called the way he said my name, I knew that I love he loved me from the way he said my name. So we wrote these two songs. We sent them off, just me playing the piano and Brendan, who wrote the lyrics, is singing. And we sent them off on a Friday, Saturday morning at like seven o'clock in the morning. We got a phone call saying, we want you to do it. And that was that. So we did. <laughs> I mean, that the song Everything is, everything is a beautiful song. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And like you were saying, like, the idea that they wanted to capture the essence of the film. Mm. As soon as it started, I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. If you, I remember seeing the film years ago. It was 1993, I think it was. But the thing I remember more about the film was the choice of songs that they used in the movie. You know, they used things like Nat King Cole and Jimmy Durante and, and like old-fashioned songs like Making Whoopi. And, and there was a great Harry Connick song that was actually a, a new song written by Mark Shaman, the supervisor. But it was such a kind of old-fashioned kind of style of song. And that the, the, the show is just old-fashioned and romantic, and that's what we tried to do. Love it. And that's just the, the, the escapism that yeah. we all look for in a musical that that romance like you're saying i'm i'm absolutely thrilled for you like i really am it's just wonderful and i'm so jealous of all these audiences that are going to get to see this hopefully it's going to run for a month and then everybody has to kind of take stock it can't like continue uh gradually yeah. this piece but i think uh, we need to show that people need to get back to the theater and then you know as time goes on this like this year and maybe early next year um, when things, God willing, get back to much more normal and uh, we can get back into theatres and cinemas and stuff, um, it will hopefully have a, another proper run then. Fingers crossed, who knows? But that, that's yeah. the plan anyway. And your creative process, are there specific things that you need in place? Are there specific people that you always kind of run stuff by? Brendan, who I write with, is kind of the, I have to say, he's a driving force. He... He comes up with the lyrics. He doesn't like writing me writing a tune and him writing the uh, lyrics that he doesn't like to work like that. So I have to write music to his lyrics, which I probably prefer anyway. And he's very, I mean, he's much younger than me and he's very um, 
driven and he's very opinionated and he's very difficult and I could kill him sometimes, but um, he's brilliant. And, and we somehow it works. You know, we fight with each other for a few days and then we come up with a song, you know, and we disagree and we, we uh, as I say, I would like to, you know, throw him off a cliff. But um, at the end of the day, I feel he managed to get the best out of me and um, we kind of work well together, yeah. And are there particular projects in mind that you would like to tackle or are you very much just reactive to what happens and what is offered and the opportunities that arise? Um, yeah, I'm, I, as, as I said earlier, it's fate and it's luck. There is a thing that I've been working on that's Scottish um, that I'm very, very keen. I've been trying for a few years to get it off the ground and I will get it off the ground. It's just a seller. It's not. It, there are a few... Um, things I've written in it, but it's a basically a celebration of Scottish music from Robert Burns to The Proclaimers. And I've got this kind of, this, this um, I, well, various ideas and this way to present it and all that kind of stuff. And it's actually been with a company and we've workshopped things and I've got some demos. And But it's just, these things take a long time, but I'm very, very passionate about that because I love Scotland. I am Scottish and I love Scottish music. And uh, I, I don't think we blow our trumpet enough. Um, you know, you go online and you see there's so much Irish celebration of Irish music and Irish dance, and, and they take it all over the world. And I, I genuinely feel we don't do it enough. And we've got such amazing musical heritage that I really, really want to celebrate that. So I, I'm, I'm determined to get that going at some point. You are spot on. I worked for a Scottish dance company for six years, and my remit was basically just to promote the traditions of Scotland. Scotland, namely Scottish dance. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just such a wealth oh my God. of music and song and storytelling. Oh my God. More than I think more than anybody else. I remember when I was at school, you know, I you know, we come from Ayrshire and Robert Burns get absolutely rammed down our throats. Even when I was at college in Glasgow, there was always a Burns competition, all that. I didn't get it. I thought it was a snooze fest. And I'm so ashamed because now when I look at Burns, I think, oh my, you know, the genius and when you hear Eddie Reader doing her Burns album and it is just she makes it accessible to everybody and she proves that these are the best songs and the best lyrics ever written about love or about whatever he writes you know so I'm ashamed that I didn't you know get it when I was younger but I'm so relieved that I've come to it now and and I, and I want to celebrate it you know. There's amazing, amazing musicians, amazing music that's kind of crossing over. It's kind of traditional, but it's it's contemporary as well. And it just needs to be heard, and it needs to be heard in a much, much bigger scale, much wider audience. Yeah, I've had a few musicians on the podcast that are very much in the, the trad scene. I had um, Man of the Minch the other day there, and he actually started um, Boa Frosh, mm-hmm. which is um, LGBTQI+ festival mm-hmm. for musicians that are in the traditional music scene uh-huh. just to, to to write together to compose together mm-hmm. um and you know it's like more of that absolutely mm-hmm. we've got to keep these traditions alive and like you're saying there's all this new music still being yeah. created yeah i mean music like you're saying the music of the proclaimers like i did uh, sunshine and leith the, the problem i've had with putting this thing together is i've got to not use too many proclaimers because quite honestly i could use about 25 you know i i go well i have to have that one and i have to have that one. And before i know i've got like 10 proclaimer songs and i know i can't have but they are just they are so relevant and so important and they're bigger now than they were when they first appeared you know like 25 years ago i thought they were a bit of a joke forgive me and now they are 
musical ambassadors for Scotland. They're, they're just everything they do. And I loved Sunshine and Leith. I absolutely loved it. I just thought it was Stephen, uh, Stephen Greenhorn came to one of our performances and I swear I just watched the back of his head the entire time <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to see if he enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's uh, that sounds tremendous. Like, I'm excited to see what you do with that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've got I've got really big ideas for it, and I'm not going to let it go. You know, so great. That's exciting. Well, I I didn't tell you about this element of the podcast, but I do a thing called the Thingamabobs, Robert. And these are just random questions that I have listed. There's like seventy odd of them, but I've picked a few for you if you would okay. indulge me. Fine. Okay. First of all, favorite view. Um, Loch Dune. Because I come from that area and we used to go up there all the time. And when you turn around the corner and it suddenly appears, I don't know, something, I absolutely love it, yeah. Oh, you were all over that. Perfect. Um, Here's a bit of a random one. Where do you not mind waiting? I suppose I don't mind waiting for a show to start. It's exciting. So I don't mind, like, queuing up or waiting for for it to happen. Best sound ever? Best sound ever is my little nieces and nephews laughing. Ah. That's lovely. Love that. What is your go-to movie if you need to cheering up? Um, there's quite a few. I like. I just like a kind of silly rom-com. There's a there's a movie called I Give It a Year, which I really I've watched a few times. It just makes me laugh. Race Ball, and I really like a movie called About Time. It's a Richard Curtis. It wasn't that famous, but it's it's just a really nice movie. So if I'm feeling a bit kind of blue or a bit fed up I put either of them on and I just enjoy them brilliant this this is a new one to the list what was your lockdown saviour sourdough right please discuss <laughs> I learned how to make sourdough like Brendan my, my friend who, write, who writes the lyrics he makes his own sourdough and um he actually started selling it properly during during lockdown because he had nothing else to do. And he kind of got me into it. So I made my own starter, developed my own starter. It took a couple of weeks, but I got it going eventually. And then I started making sourdough and I'm still doing it. I make a, you know, every few days. I mean, I've got my starter in the fridge. I've got it out just now. I just fed it, learned to make sourdough. I taught my brother how to do it as well. He's been doing it. Um, yeah, that's that. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Someone had put on a picture of the other day and it was like flour that was now like, on like it was on sale it was like half price and like oh times have changed at one point you couldn't get any flour absolutely couldn't get it anywhere i was like traveling all over london just to find some flour (laughs) well here's one advice for your younger self oh just be braver i think you know even that thing of not letting people hear things you do or not wanting to you know try things just be brave just go for it what what have you got to lose well there's plenty of time still to open that bottom drawer full of absolutely Yeah, yeah 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 And the question that I ask every single person on the podcast is, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? Uh, Dreech, I think. You know, when you get a dreech day, there isn't an English word that that can describe that kind of grey, miserable, drizzly day. There isn't an English word in existence, and dreech says it all. It really does. It does come up a lot in the podcast. Yeah. So what is on the cards for you this weekend, Robert Scott? This weekend I'm going to France. Oh, okay then, I'm glad I asked. I've got a place there and, and I go there to escape and I go there to write and I go there to get away from London. So I was there for a couple of months and then I come back because 
Sleepless Opening, and I was also asked to play for an online thing for Dame Patricia Routledge, which was very, very nice. Because I played for her before, and she's absolutely lovely, and she's 91 now, and I thought, and um, it, was, it was great. So I came back for that. Sleepless is now open, so I'll go back on Sunday for another few weeks, and then I'll come back and see what what happens. <laughs> What's happening with your baby? That's the thing. Yeah, you're, absolutely, yeah. I must feel like that, like putting your your music, your creation out into the world. Yeah, yeah, giving it away, and then it's you know some people like it, some people don't, and that's the same as everything. You just you know you just have to kind of go with it and see what happens. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for doing this, Robert. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely to meet you virtually. You too. And thank you for giving us your wonderful music. I'm looking forward to hearing more of it. Oh, thank you very much. And I wish you all the best with this very exciting Scottish project. I'm delighted that you're you're doing that. And I will keep doing it, I promise you. Brilliant. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Braw and the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.